If you have a Bible, you can go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. As we've been studying this book since Easter, I've become increasingly convinced of Peter's genius. When I went to Bible college and did this overview of the New Testament, one of the things that we learned was that Peter's grammar, Peter's Greek grammar, was not that great. And yet what I find the more and more I read this is that Peter is an incredibly gifted author. He's an incredibly gifted uh, craftsman when it comes to arguments. Peter was a preacher. Peter's first sermon, given on the day of Pentecost, added thousands to the church. And Peter writes his letters like he writes a sermon. He borrows a theme from there and brings it forward and back and interweaves it in ways that you don't always see coming. And so here in 1 Peter 4, as Peter continues his conversation about suffering as Christians, he interweaves themes from the prior parts of the letter to make a really interesting and really challenging point, a point that echoes one of my favorite documents from early church history. We all have one of those, I know. My favorite document from the early church is called the Didache, which simply means the teaching. It dates to the first century, just decades after Jesus died. And it is an owner's manual, if you will, for the early church, this ragtag bunch of uh, people that live on the fringes of society. And the first line of the Didache, the first line says this, there are two ways one of life and one of death, but a great difference between the two ways. In our cultural moment of blurred lines and exceptions to the rule of relativism and individualism, such a statement will strike our ears as odd or maybe even insensitive or not politically correct, and yet This ancient wisdom reflects the way of Jesus, the Jesus who said that the way of the world is wide and easy, but the way to heaven is narrow. As we continue to give our attention to 1 Peter, a letter that explores the very, we we come to this section that explores the reality of what the Didache is getting at bluntly. Upon being born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of God's words, we become participants in the way of life, the way of Jesus, and yet we are surrounded in that moment by those who are still of the way of death. And at best, that creates some awkwardness, and at worst, there is suffering that comes when the way, when the, way the world lives and the way we live bump up against one another. In this letter, Peter is addressing Christians whose life change has caused them to be treated differently than their non-Christian neighbors. They are mocked and slandered and, and maligned and reviled by people who they called friends and family just a minute or two ago. And to help them understand this new reality, Peter calls these new Christians exiles and sojourners and resident aliens. They are not geographical exiles. 
uprooted from their country of origin, play somewhere else. Their spiritual exiles, their new birth, has changed their loyalty and residency, and they are now citizens of heaven, heaven, members of God's family, and engaging with friends and neighbors, Peter says in the middle of section of the letter, requires these virtues of submission and honor toward the government, in marriage, toward slaves and owners, or employers, toward everyone. But sometimes, sometimes honor and submission just aren't enough. Sometimes honor and submission fail. We are treated like a doormat. Sometimes we suffer for righteousness sake at the hands of other people who might be, as we learned last week, manipulated by the dark demonic forces at work behind the scenes. And so in the final section of this letter that we've picked up last week, in this final section, Peter is addressing the suffering that inevitably comes from the following of Jesus It's about how suffering is for us, as it was for Jesus, a path to victory and blessing. And in particular here, in 1 Peter 4, he wants to help us see that the choice between what the Didache calls the way of life and the way of death is a difficult daily decision. Choosing the way of life, Peter will say, will lead to a measure of suffering, and that will cause us to be exiles. But the good news is that in our exile, we are rooted in a, I learned a new word this week, we'll get there, an enclave of formation and family and mission that will help us endure that suffering while we wait for the end of all things. Yet again, Peter manages to weave together about a dozen things and about 12 verses that makes it a little difficult to walk through, but we're going to look through each of those paragraphs and see how in the midst of the suffering in which we find our path to holiness, we are given community in this enclave of other Christians. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and look with me at chapter 4, starting in verses 1 and 2, where Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, he's referring back to chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's an interesting move. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter is continuing this conversation about suffering from the last half of chapter 3, and he names the suffering of Jesus and starts to build out a comparison between the suffering of Jesus and the suffering that we experience. And here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says that since Jesus suffered in the flesh, meaning in his body, sometimes the Bible can use the word flesh to refer to like our our bodies, but also this inward part that has a desire to sin, and in this case, it's the more literal body. He says that since Jesus suffered in the flesh, you expect him to say, you're going to suffer too, and he does, but he implies that and then says, make sure that when you suffer, you arm yourself, not with the behavior of Jesus, he says, but with the same kind of thinking that Jesus had. Jesus, in his suffering, set his mind in a particular way, and Peter says, for us to set our minds in a similar way. When we suffer for righteousness, the battle is won or lost, not primarily in how we act, but in how we think, because how we act flows from how we think. 
Peter says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. This is military language. He says that our minds and the way that we think when we are in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the suffering that we talked about last week, remember we used this kind of illustration of you're out drinking with some of your friends that you used to just kind of go along with and now you're interacting with them differently and being in that position creates this kind of uncomfortable kind of suffering and we said that in in that moment we want to have an answer prepared we want to be ready to engage we want to know that we'll be brought safely through that moment but Peter also says that in that moment we are called to think like Jesus thinks It would be good to understand, if Peter is going to talk to us about a battle, the precise nature of that battle. It seems that Peter is weaving together in this letter the three common enemies often brought brought, uh, and described in the early church, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a system of thinking, and Peter identifies this battle against friends and neighbors who do not understand our life and the following of Jesus. He brings those up in verses 4, 5, and 6. Then there's the passions of our flesh that Peter addresses in verse 2, this inward desire to chase after sin. And then we've already seen the enemy at work, first in chapter 3. We'll see it again in chapter 5. There's this axis of evil that the early church saw of the world, the flesh, and the devil, that Peter is helping us see that that Jesus suffered in the flesh for and that we suffer in the flesh in a similar way. And Peter says that the way through that is to arm ourselves with a certain kind of thinking. He says when we think like Jesus, who thought in terms of self-denial, we will also experience suffering But the good news that Peter has for us, this is confusing, is that those who suffer in the flesh cease from sin. What Peter is telling us today is that suffering is in some ways the path to holiness. Those who suffer in the flesh, Peter says, cease from sin. And then he goes on to say, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, in our bodies, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. When we set our minds on the life of Jesus, who suffered in the flesh, as we think, about the same, we think in the same way that he thought as he endured that suffering, we find what he found, that suffering is, a, is the path to victory. Suffering is the path to blessing. That suffering, in this case, is the path to holiness. As Jesus went toe-to-toe with this axis of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, he suffered He suffered because he wouldn't play the game. He wouldn't participate in the same way that Peter is calling these spiritual exiles to not participate. That that self-denial, that refusing to participate, cost Jesus his life. Jesus died because his whole life was a protest against the self a protest against self-indulgence of the flesh against systems of injustice in the world against the demonic powers using all of these things in a grand misinformation and deceiving campaign Peter calls us to think in the same way to think in terms of self-denial to engage in a steady ongoing battle with the world the flesh and the devil look at what Peter then goes on to say in verses 3 and 3 through 5 For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. If you're a new Christian, you kind of understand this. You've had your fill of these things, Peter has said. And now the page has turned and it's time to move into a different kind of life. And Gentiles usually refers to non-Jews. But again, Peter is spiritualizing here and talking about all non-Christians. 
For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The Gentiles, the non-believers, they spend their lives in what Peter calls a flood of debauchery, indulging endlessly in the passions of the flesh, passions like sensuality and drunkenness and orgies, which in the end, Peter says, are little more than lawless idolatry. Our non-Christian friends and neighbors are surprised when we practice self-denial, when we don't join them in that flood. In fact, Peter says they may go as far as to malign and mock us for that. And again, we kind of built an illustration around this last week. But Peter focuses our eyes beyond the present circumstance. He, he wants us to see simultaneously how the suffering of Jesus was the path to victory and blessing and holiness and will be for us. But he also wants us to see how the future that God has secured gives us courage in this present moment. Peter here in uh, verse 5 talks about that they will give account, they, the Gentiles, in their flood of debauchery, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter roots our present behavior in a secure future when God will judge everyone living. This is the second time, or the third time, rather, that Peter has mentioned the judgment that will take place at the end of time in this letter. Peter is trying to give us, here's your fancy word for the day, eschatological hope. Eschatological means the, it's the theology of the end times. Eschaton means the last. He's trying to focus our eyes on how God wants to wrap all of history together to bring finally all injustice to an end even the small injustices that Peter's readers then and now experience at the hands of friends who don't understand their way of life. Peter is trying to help us see the future as a way to live more faithfully in the present, saying don't worry about your non-Christian friends and neighbors who judge you for not living in the way they want you to, because God, the one that you serve by living how he wants you to, uh, will ultimately bring things to his desired end. Peter tells us that self-denial against the passions of the flesh is how we wage war against the axis of evil, the world, the flesh, and the devil, even if that self-denial causes us to be mocked. And he sums this up in chapter 4, verse 6, saying, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. See, this is Peter. This is a classic example of Peter using words he's already used in multiple ways to kind of create multiple hearings of the word. And while this on the surface kind of strikes our ears also as a confusing passage, here's what Peter is trying to get at. He's trying to help these Christians who are mocked for not indulging the passions of the flesh to see beyond this life. He, he's trying to help them see that even though they are judged in the flesh by their friends and neighbors for not participating, they will be alive in the spirit because of the preaching that they heard, the preaching they heard when they were alive and now dead. See, here's what's happening in the early church. 
the mantra of first century Greco-Roman culture, the mantra of the first century Greco-Roman culture was simply this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. And so as these Christians practice self-denial, refuse to participate in what Peter calls the flood of debauchery, what, 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 what hap- what's happening is they're being mocked for not, and maligned for not participating, and Peter's way of comforting them is saying that you didn't waste your life on self-denial. You didn't waste your life on holiness because the preaching you received while living is true even when you're dead and you will be made alive in the spirit. In other words, Peter's trying to help us see our present suffering through a few lenses. He's trying to help us see our present suffering against particularly uh, the world and those who mock us, the flesh, uh, the inner passions of hunger and desire, and including the, the spiritual forces of wickedness kind of manipulating them. He's trying to help us see our battle against those things as, yes, a mental battle of engaging the same kind of worldview that Jesus had, a worldview of self-denial. He's trying to help us root our suffering and the suffering of Jesus, who found victory and blessing and holiness through his experience of suffering, and and we will too. But he's also trying to give us a future hope that there is more to our life than just this, and that that future eschatological hope gives us courage to make hard choices right now. But but this is the piece that, that sticks. What Peter is calling us to do is really hard. Let me summarize where we've been in verses 1 through 6 as simply this. Throughout this whole letter, Peter has been calling us to live into our spiritual identity as exiles. He's been calling us to live as the people of God, and as he does so, he's calling us to something really challenging. Now listen, Jesus said that his burden is easy and his yoke is light. It's true. But Jesus also knows that there is a level of discipline and suffering that comes to enter into that easy yoke. It's, it's rather counterintuitive. Peter has called us to do something really hard. He's called us to live in a distinct way from the rest of our culture, which means suffering. He's called us to live in a distinct way of submission and honor toward government and, and marriage and all of these things. Peter is calling us to something really challenging. And so Peter wants to offer us a measure of comfort Peter wants to offer us a measure of comfort, and that measure of comfort, that measure of comfort is this, that we are not alone, that we've been rooted in a spiritual family, in an enclave, I'll tell you what that word means in a minute, of a family and formation and mission that gives us a sense of belonging and comfort while we engage in this uphill battle, not only against our flesh, not only against the powers of darkness, but even against the world. We're an embattled minority. We're like Noah, he said last week. So how do we engage in this? Well, he tries to help us see that we are in an enclave, and I, and I learned this word this week. Um, I said to Steph, you know, remember that nightclub in Chicago, not far away from Moody, and I said it was called Enclave, and she said actually it was called Excalibur, which to be fair is a cooler nightclub name. Um, but here's the, what an enclave is. Here's, here's a dictionary definition of what an enclave is. An enclave is a portion or territory within or surrounded by a larger territory whose inhabitants are culturally or ethnically distinct a portion or, of ter- or territory within or surrounded by a larger territory whose inhabitants are culturally or ethnically distinct. Another one is a place or group that is different in character from those surrounding it. Now, here's what's interesting about enclaves. 
here's who usually live in enclaves. Exiles, immigrants, sojourners, and resident aliens. In Cleveland, I don't know if you've ever been there, in Cleveland, there is a neighborhood called Little Italy. Uh, in Chicago, there's a largely Hispanic neighborhood called La Vita. In Throughout American history, people of certain ethnicities have gathered in certain spots and cities so that they could have an experience of sameness even when they're in a different place. And what Peter is presenting to the exiles and sojourners, you and I this morning, is that we are given an enclave of belonging, an enclave of formation, a belonging of family, a belonging of, of mission and service that gives us that sense of comfort while we engage in this uphill battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. In other words, Peter is talking to us today about church. He's talking to us today about church, and he does this in chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand, Peter says. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Peter wants us to see this enclave, this community of belonging surrounded by difference and our sameness. He calls that church an enclave, a place of safety and belonging, a place of formation and family and service and mission. So look at this verse 7. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It was easy in the, last, in the first century to, after Jesus ascended to have the sense of we're in the last days, Jesus could come back at any moment, and to kind of lose your head. I don't know if there's any cultural overlap between now and our crazy moment and that crazy moment and people losing their heads, but what's happening to these Christians is, is they're kind of just going a little mentally wild, and so Peter says, be clear-minded and self-control. They define this verb to pray. One commentator said, the nearness of the end has led some believers to lose their heads and act irrationally. On the contrary, believers should think sensibly as they contemplate the brevity of life in this world. Those who know the contours of history are able to assess the significance of the present. Their sensible and alert thinking is to be used for prayer, for entreating God to act and move in the time that still remains. The realization that God is bringing history to a close should provoke believers to depend on him, and this dependence is manifested in prayer. For in prayer, believers recognize that any good that occurs in the world is due to God's grace. In this enclave, we are formed to be a prayerful people. Not a people purely of protest or outrage or apathy or indifference. Kind of the broad spectrum of our culture is either nothing or everything. But prayer is not doing nothing, nor does it avoid outrage. That's what lament is for. Prayer, in the words of John Wesley, is where the action is. And in this enclave, we are formed to be people of prayer asking God to move in this last bit of time, trusting in his goodness, doing so with sober minds and self-control. It's, it's an enclave of family. It's, it's an enclave of formation, and it's an 
enclave of family. Look at verses 8 and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, kind of rooted us in this family identity. And that carries through here, because for these early Christians then, and, and for some Christians now, stepping across the line of faith means to be abandoned by friends and neighbors and even family. And so Peter invites us to extend family to one another in this enclave of togetherness. He says that love covers a multitude of sins. And in context, that would be not only the sins between us, but the sins against us. Sometimes beaten and bruised and battered, we come home, we come back to our people where there is love and grace that binds up our wounds, that heals us. But love also covers the sins between us, the things that I do to you and say to you and you do to me and say to me. Peter invites us to practice hospitality without grumbling, without grumbling. And hospitality is short-term, sharing a meal around a table. It's also long-term, inviting someone to be a part of your family and live in your home. And if we were meeting together, if we could be together safely, here would be the challenge I would issue to you. Would be to have somebody over for dinner who posted something on social media that you disliked or disagreed with. While we're an enclave of togetherness and some sameness toward the end times, there's plenty of difference. And the way that we overcome the differences between us is by pressing deeper into relationship, not further away. If we were meeting together, if we could safely meet, I would say have a meal with someone this week. Maybe do so outside on your back deck. Have a meal this week with someone who posted something on social media that you disliked or disagreed with, either about COVID or about what's going on in our country right now or, I mean, really anything because social media is little more than a hot, hot mess of disagreement these days. You are going to spend forever in heaven with the people you disagree with. You will spend forever in heaven with people who look different than you. And there's a foretaste of heaven experience now when we practice hospitality to one another, when we live as spiritual family. We are, it is an enclave of formation, it is an enclave of family, and it is an enclave of mission. See, what's interesting about enclaves is usually they're isolated. There's a pretty high wall culturally between the culture out there and the culture in here. But this enclave is not self-isolating. Peter says it's called to grow, it's called to serve and to mission. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And this is the key piece. To him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. See, the Holy Spirit's presence among us means that each of us have been, has been specifically gifted in a way to reveal God to the world. It is our duty, then, to bless the world with something that we uniquely express of God. And he says to do that if you speak as one who speaks the words of God, whether you're speaking it in the enclave or outside of the enclave, do your words, do your postings, are they the words of God? Remember that at the end of time, by the way, Jesus says that we will be judged by every useless word that falls 
from our mouths. My nightmare scenario version of what that is, is what if when we get to heaven, we are forced to watch all of our useless words go by as a Star Wars intro crawl until they're all gone? I would endeavor to make that list as short as possible, wouldn't you? But social media begs for an instant response. The heat of the moment begs for a useless word. But as one who speaks the words of God, whoever serves through the strength that God provides. And this, Peter says, expands God's glory and dominion throughout the earth. It's not about keeping it small. It's about expanding it and making the family bigger. We have been called to be an embattled minority. We have been called to an uphill battle, but we are assured that our suffering is actually the path to victory, that our suffering is actually the path to blessing, that our suffering is the path to holiness. And in that difficulty, we are given each other. We are given each other. On this Pentecost Sunday, the day that we recall the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on each one of many tribes and tongues and languages, as the as God marked out his people as temple space, as he empowered us for such a time as this, we're reminded that this enclave is not on our own strength, nor is that battle, but it is through the grace that God provides. And my prayer for you this week is that you would experience in a culture of contempt and anger and outrage, so much of it rightful, so much of it not as rightful that you would experience God's varied or manifold or many-colored grace. In a minute, Steph will post the link to the prayer room. I want to invite you to enter into that space to receive prayer today, to encounter God in a fresh way. I'm going to pray and we'll sing and close our time. Thanks for your patience with our tech. Father, you are worthy of our time and attention today. Jesus, we love you and cry out to be more faithfully the church presented in these pages, more faithfully the church needed for such a time as this, more faithfully your people. Help us see the path to holiness and victory and blessing even in our suffering today. In Jesus' name, amen.